0: Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. Welcome to episode number 383 of the Essential Tennis Podcast. Today, we're gonna be talking about tennis friction and flow. Today's definitely a different kind of episode if you're looking strictly for tennis insights and improvement advice, then probably skip to another episode, to be totally honest with you. If you're interested in the episodes that are more so about kind of personal development and improvement and mental toughness, then today might be exactly what you're looking for. I'm going to be recreating here a talk that I gave at the book signing for my book launch. My book came out on May 31st, a couple weeks ago, as of the recording of this episode, and it debuted a number one bestseller on nine different Amazon categories, which I was super grateful for. It has over a hundred five star reviews now on Amazon. Super super grateful. So if if you've purchased it, then thank you so much. Hope you've really enjoyed it. I spoke in front of a, a small group of people at a private, not private, a um, well yeah, a privately owned uh, bookstore. One of the only privately owned bookstores in downtown Milwaukee. It's it's been there a long time. Really kind of special store in downtown Milwaukee, and they hosted me for the launch of my book on May 31st. So I did two clinics that day, and then a bunch of the clinic attendees and family and friends came to the the launch of my book, and I gave this talk. And the day was so crazy. I wish I remembered to record it, uh, but but I didn't. It was all kind of last minute that I put this together, and I really wish I did. And so to kind of have a recording of these thoughts while they're still somewhat fresh in my head, I wanted to record them and post it on the, the podcast. So part of this I'm gonna read the conclusion of my book called Essential Tennis. But first I'll I'll tell you the same things I told that live audience and go through my notes here. It really just gives a lot of background about my history as a tennis player, as a tennis coach. And the different ways that I think I've navigated that journey and lessons that I think could possibly be really important for for you listening. So to start with here, I'd like to tell you a, a quote from Tim Ferriss, which is one of my favorite podcasts over the years. It's F-E-R-R-I-S-S. He interviews lots of world-class performers and people who kind of specialize in In performance and personal developments, business people, athletes, uh, finance people, psychologists, doctors, all trainers—like you name it—he just loves talking to people who are super high performers. And books come up a lot in his podcasts. And a topic that comes up a lot is—is when when do you think you should write a book? Tim has published a bunch of best-selling books, including The 4-Hour Workweek back in the day, which helped me get started online publishing content, like back in, we're talking 2007, 2008. And Tim likes to say, you shouldn't write a book unless it's easier for you to write the book than it is to not write the book. In other words, the book writing process is so tedious and so long and so arduous, which I can totally... I can totally now like in hindsight looking back totally vouch for that unless you feel so compelled to write it that it's it's actually easier for you to write it than it is to not write it then it's probably not something you should bite off because it's such a crazy journey. And so I feel like that was very much the case for me with with my book Essential Tennis. It it was it kind of came about naturally as a byproduct of things that i've really struggled with and pushed against over the years and it just kind of had to happen it was it was a book that had to be created because of my path and my journey so as i thought back about kind of the main junctures in my career as a player and as a coach that really led me to where i am now there's four s- stories that come to mind that i'll tell really quickly each one that i think just kind of illustrates my that drive that I have, and, and that illustrates the fact that it kind of had to happen eventually. And the theme for me that kind of boils to the surface is this idea of friction versus flow. Friction meaning some kind of obstacle or something slowing us down, or some kind of like dissonance, or it just doesn't feel right. Versus a lot of times, the word flow is used to describe like being in the zone, being being in a flow state where you're just kind of acting naturally or intuitively, and and things are just kind of coming out of you that that aren't forced, and it just fe- everything kind of feels right. So, story number one or situation number one, where I felt like I kind of had to choose between those two different paths, either friction or flow, was a meeting that I called with a director of tennis as a kid. I was probably 14 or 15, and I was very fortunate to be participating in a summer high-performance program at a local tennis club, and it was a special thing for me because I grew up in a house that didn't have the finances to allow me to do kind of a typical tournament player kind of experience as a tennis player. We had a one-income Household. My mom stayed home with me and my three siblings full time. my My dad was a graphic designer. You know, didn't make tons of money, and so with the four of us at home, being homeschooled by my mom, there just you know there just wasn't a lot of money to go around for us to pursue other kind of outside interests. So thanks to by that time I had a paper route and some help from grandparents I got to experience this summer summer program at a local club which is really special for me. I didn't get, really get to experience tennis club life very frequently and this was like a nicer club and there were some of the best players in the state as a high school player were participating in this program. And I was so bothered by the lack of effort and focus and how seriously the other kids took this program, I I was there all business, you know, as a as like a fourteen or fifteen year old. This was like a really like special thing for me. I, tennis was at that time already like my passion. I loved it, and I was there to work as hard as possible and run for every ball until it bounced twice and just squeeze like every drop out of the experience. And I was so frustrated that the other kids around me didn't take it as seriously as i did you know for them it was just kind of another activity the vast majority of them uh the the members of this club were you know, generally speaking, like on average, a very different place, like financially. And this was just kind of normal for them. This was just kind of an average day doing average stuff. And it, it wasn't normal or average for me. And it bothered me so much that I called a meeting with the director of tennis at that club who wasn't even involved in the programming or the coaching for this program. But to me, it was like, well, he's in charge. And I need to tell somebody about this because it bothered me so much. So I sat down in his office and and told him like how concerned I was uh, for the the program that this this culture of kind of goofing around was just kind of the normal thing. So I felt a great deal of friction in that moment. It just felt wrong to me, I, and I felt like I had to do something about it. And that was the only thing I could think of doing that maybe. Could move the needle, of course it wasn 't going to, but but I, I just kind of felt the need to to do that, so story number two was in college i don 't talk about this a lot, but i I quit my college team after walking on as a sophomore i didn 't I, I was kind of a big fish in a small pond in high school and was number one singles for two years, then went to college didn 't make my college team my freshman year. It was a nationally ranked division two school. Worked really hard my whole freshman year, and walked on my sophomore year, the bottom spot on the team. And it was the most—it was the m- most impactful, most special accomplishment for my by far, like the most exciting thing that ever happened to me in my life. At that point, was making my college team, and so I played my sophomore year, my junior year, and by my senior year, I was incredibly angry and like frustrated with myself. I I had brought in to the college experience this kind of perfectionistic mindset. And I was, again, kind of a big fish and sm- very small pond in high school. And I went from winning a lot without being challenged much to losing a lot and being ch- constantly challenged and being like the weakest player day after day after day. And it led me to a really dark place psychologically to the point where I actually walked off the team the second semester of my my senior year. I ha- I had so much internal like anguish and darkness that it f- just felt like the right choice to just walk away from competition. I was getting ready to start coaching full time after graduating that second semester of my senior year. The team was going to nationals and I I I left the team. Because I was just so unhappy, just it just it, tennis went from the thing that made me the most happy and the most like fulfilled and satisfied to the thing that made me the most angry and like most upset, and frankly that kind of scared me, and so I walked off the team, and didn't start competing again for many years after that. So that's story number two. Friction, a great deal of internal tension and struggle led me to do something I never would have thought I'd ever do, which is walking off the team. So uh, fast forward a year or two, I, I have my first teaching job. Here's story number three. And <laughs> kind of similar to story number one, I I started teaching full-time. Again, kind of a dream come true. I, c- I couldn't believe I got a job. Being on a tennis court full-time, it, it just seemed like the most unimaginable thing ever that I would be paid to be on a tennis court all day. And naively I kind of assumed that the people who would sign up for lessons with me would share my passion for learning and leaving my comfort zone and pushing myself and working hard and like pushing, pushing myself to like the edges of what I was capable of and, and kind of Pushing like, for the long term to, to become as good as possible. And when I found out that a lot of people sign up for lessons, I know, shocker, At a, I got a job at a private kind of country club type of club. And when I when I found, again, like I said, I, I was pretty naive. When I found out that, s, that a big chunk of the people signing up for lessons with me didn't want any of those things, but were, I, it's not that they didn't want to get better, but... They didn't want to be really challenged. They just kind of wanted some like tips and like some stuff on the surface to help them be more ready for like their match on Saturday. They're taking a, le- a lesson on Wednesday and you know, they don't they don't want to rock the boat or or take like a step back in their game because they've got, you know, their weekly match coming up and they just want to polish a little bit of like what's on the surface. And <laughs> I I couldn't I was I really frustrated kind of like when I was the junior player going to the summer program and I couldn't believe that people didn't take it as seriously as I did and so I was really frustrated uh, over time like uh, over the months of that first like year year and a half to the point where I called a meeting again with the director of tennis again <laughs> and said hey this is this is really bothering me like is this normal and like am I crazy and you know, this is kind of frustrating. And what should I, like, what should I do about this? And so it just, again, to me internally, just kind of felt wrong. And it just felt like, man, this isn't, it's not what I expected. It didn't feel like it was the way it was supposed to be. And, and I wanted to find out like, if there was some kind of solution. So story four, last one here, that just kind of illustrates this, this path, as a person, for me, as a player, as a coach, my next job was the one out in the D.C. area. And I taught. this really very much was like a, a high-end like, country club. You'd think I would have learned my lesson from that first job. And like in hindsight, I really should have thought hard about what club I went to next. But after about a year, year and a half, I, I applied for a job at one of the top private clubs in, in the United States out in Maryland. And my wife and I had done summer internships out there. We really wanted to experience a different part of the country and made my way through the interview process, got the job. And in in hindsight, again, probably should have really thought twice about going to another private club with the frustrations I had with the clientele. But I did because it was an incredible job. It seemed like an obvious opportunity to, to jump on. And while I was there... I I kind of continued navigating through that same kind of friction inside about the lack of commitment and kind of dedication from students and slowly kind of started building my own clientele of people who took it more seriously and were kind of on the same page with me in terms of like my coaching style and the passion I had for for teaching and and not so much like uh, being... The type of coach who specializes in like fun and excitement and activity like that was just really not me. We we had other coaches that were great at that. Every club should have coaches like that, and that just wasn't me. So thankfully, I could kind of navigate through the clientele a little bit and and kind of customize my schedule to a certain degree. But a big chunk of my students still were not really the ones I wanted to teach. And while I was there, I started really getting into using video. This was in. 2006, 2007, 2008, back before digital video was was very easy or inexpensive the way it is now in in 2022, and I started using video analysis in my lessons on the court, and I even I, I started I created. Uh, I didn't start like I actually did it. I made a membership portal for the members at this club where people could log in and see their footage from their lesson and their analysis clips and and so I was the only coach that offered video and I was starting to build out this like membership portal where people could log in and watch their progress you know go from lesson to lesson and remember what we talked about and so basically creating an online you know website just for members to get more value and more insight from their their tennis, you know, lessons and their tennis journey. And it just became abundantly clear that nobody wanted it. <laughs> the uh the club leadership and like management didn't they weren't really interested in it. I mean, they kind of supported me, but more more so just kind of let me do it, but I really wasn't getting any support from them at all. I was doing it all on my own time with my own money paying web developers and and things like that and there was little to no interest from members and it really again bothered me i felt like i had something that was really insightful and i really just wanted somebody else who was excited about it and i just wanted to share it like with somebody <laughs> but but nobody was was really there was a couple members but literally like one or two out of the hundreds and hundreds of people that were there taking tennis lessons on on a regular basis so All those different examples for me, like looking back over my career as a player and then as a coach, are just illustrations that, for me, tell the story. Like I came up against these friction points over and over and over again as a player, as a coach, and I had the choice in each of those situations to either sit in my frustration, to sit in my you know, dark places or to just kind of accept what I was being told about the way things are and, and kind of conform to whatever the situation was and just kind of suck it up and, you know, do do the best I could in the situation. Or what I more so chose to do was kind of push back against the friction and just kind of take my own path and, and do my own thing. And sometimes like in the case of, of being a college tennis player, it meant just kind of isolating myself and removing myself from the situation altogether because it just felt really unhealthy, and I, I just was kind of scared by the direction I was headed if I didn't do something about it. And in the other instances, like I, I just felt compelled to take action and just do something, even when it seemed like nobody else really cared. <laughs> I just, I just felt that this internal. Uh, push, this internal drive to do something about it. And it was all that friction and frustration that ultimately, ultimately led to Essential Tennis. It was from that space, that kind of internal like resistance and frustration around me that I started publishing, that I, I wanted, like it just seemed like, man, there's got to be people out there that do want this and do appreciate it. And if they're not right in front of me, I got to do something to try to attract them because if i could just spend my time kind of just with those people man that would be incredible like i already i already liked what i was doing and i was grateful to have a job that you know was part of tennis cuz i just loved it so much but for whatever reason i just kept i kept feeling this internal friction to the point where i just had to take more action on my own time using my own money my own resources and that's what led to essential tennis and that's where i found my most flow-like state was creating things and resources, spending time with a certain type of person and creating things for a certain type of person. That's where I felt total freedom and connection with, with a kindred spirit, somebody that valued what I valued to the degree I valued it and, and really fully appreciated what, what I brought to the table. And so, over the years— I've created over 10,000 pieces of content since 2008 when I first started publishing stuff online. Over 6,000 videos between my YouTube channel is over 2,000 and then all my paid courses and programs, there's over 4,000 and all of those. Over 3,000 emails and and blogs, like a a lot of written content and over 1,000 audio pieces of content, including this show. Not quite 400 of the Essential Tennis Podcast, but I've done lots of other uh, different audio shows and interviews and other resources that are audio-based over the years as well. So, using those 10,000 pieces of content, Joel, my co-writer wanted to make one big piece of content that encapsulated all of it like all the lessons everything i've learned over the the 12 years of publishing um and and content creation we our goal basically was to roll all that together find out what the the biggest common de- denominator principles are that i just keep coming back to that i can't ignore year after year after year and it was those essential foundational elements that made their way into the book. The things that I feel kind of everything else is built on top of. And so much of that is perspective and mindset and viewing the game and improvement process through the right lens, having the right attitude and, and the right perspective, the type of things that usually make their way onto the podcast, this show. And without those things, especially if you're competitive you won't stay in the game long enough to reach your goals. I recognize that the friction that I had and the friction that my students had, like the people who really uh, resonated with me strongly they felt that same drive and that same they were they were compelled just like me to try to find the the right answers to their problems, and they weren't satisfied by surface level just kind of polishing like they they wanted the truth about what was happening beneath the surface. And that's what I'm most fulfilled in solving are those problems for exactly those types of people. And for me personally, like when somebody comes to work with me in person, yeah, I'm, I'm going to record their forehand, their backhand, their serve, and I'm, I'm going to show them exactly what they should focus on and what their flaws are and what they should do to make it to the next level with their technique. But the mindset things, the perspective shifts, the the psychological and mental toughness, aha moments, those are even much more meaningful to me as a coach. And that's what I really, really wanted to, to capture and encapsulate and put into the book so that people who read it come away with a, a deeper understanding of themselves and what the game of tennis means to them as a human. Because it connects so strongly with the rest of life. And so a couple examples of that quickly. And I'm I'm going to read the the conclusion of my book here in just a moment to kind of wrap things up. But on the the day that I gave this talk, I I did two clinics, a 3-hour one in the morning and a 3-hour one in the afternoon for people that wanted to come in and kind of celebrate the the book launch. It was a f- fantastic time, amazing people, amazing students. And a big thank you to the coaches that helped helped me out as well. So a, to, a couple quick examples. Before each of those clinics started, I asked everybody, we kind of went around the group and everybody introduced themselves. They said their name, where they're from. And I asked everybody to, to tell the group why they love tennis. And three examples really quick from the students. One person said, what brings out the best and the worst in me, it brings out my biggest flaws and frustrations, they get exposed and then I get to work on them. I think I, maybe I combined two of them there. Sorry. One person said that it brings out the best and the worst in me, which you would think, you know, for a normal person, like the best sounds great, but the worst, man, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But there's so many players out there who appreciate those things being exposed Just like that second person, my biggest flaws and frustrations get exposed and I get to work on them. That's, man, that's incredibly valuable and insightful. And that's what happened to me back in college. Some of my biggest flaws in terms of my personality and psychology were getting exposed. It was being, it was getting shown to me like very clearly that I had stuff to work on and it took me a while. It it took me a while to unpack and unwind those things and and I have, and I'm really really grateful for that. And the third person said, "I thought this was awesome. My kids were were in the audience, and they they enjoyed getting to hear this one." Uh, somebody in our, our one of our student groups said, "I feel like the Grinch from uh, the." What's the name of the the movie? The Night the Grinch Stole Christmas, or whatever the the actual title of the the Grinch movie is. I feel like the Grinch shouting from the top of Mount Who. I don't know. If, I don't know how familiar you are with the story or with the movie, but there's uh, there's a part where he's shouting from the top of his mountain, going down the the. Um, the phone book, listing every person and yelling, I hate you. <laughs> so this person said, he feels like the Grinch on the top of the mountain who's saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And that was part of what he loved about tennis was, was not so, obviously not so much that, you know, he feels like that, but on any given day, like it, it draws out that level of of challenge and kind of personal you know, a obstacle that he gets to try to overcome. So I resonate with that strongly. And if you're still listening, especially to this episode, but if you listen to this show in general, then you probably really resonate, you know, strongly with that. And so why does this book exist? Why does the book essential tenants exist? For me personally, it had to, like, I feel like I didn't, I didn't have a choice but to take the path of flow, uh, I didn't feel like I had a choice but to avoid that friction and find a solution and keep pushing to something a little bit better and a little bit better. And that's what led to all the content and that's what led to the book. And my hope is that it helps others move away from friction and towards flow, both on the tennis court, but I mean, for me, over time especially, the the most impactful ones are in everyday life to be able to help people as well. So I hope that's the case for you, too. And I'd like to read the conclusion here. And the last three episodes, by the way, have been me reading uh, chapters of the book. This will probably be the last uh, chunk of the book that I I read here on the podcast. It's pretty short, just a couple, couple pages and just kind of encapsulate encapsulates my hopes for the book and why I wrote it. So the conclusion is called Finding Fulfillment, Love for the Tennis Journey. I recently ran into one of my former students. We caught up for a few minutes. Then I asked how his tennis was coming along, and he smiled. I don't play, he said. He explained that at some point, the game had stopped being fun. He'd gotten sick of it. Sick of making the same mistakes and losing to the same people. Sick of practicing and trying so hard to improve, only to play a match and have it all fall apart. Even when he won, it felt like a struggle. As he said all of this, he looked genuinely happy and relieved that tennis was no longer part of his life. I asked if he'd taken up another sport. I run, he said, and I love it. Because unless it starts raining or I step in dog crap, I know I'm going to enjoy it. It was never like that with tennis. I can't say I was shocked to hear he'd quit. Surprised? Maybe. But not shocked. A lot of serious players I know have at some point thought about quitting. The feeling typically doesn't last. Maybe as long as the car ride home after a bad loss. But I do know players who quit for a few months or even years. Once in a while, a player quits for good. Believe me, I get it. Tennis can be excruciating. The game is designed to accentuate your flaws, which is something I talk a lot about in the book, and the failure rate is incredibly high. Even when playing your best, you're going to lose almost half the points. And since 70% of all points end with an error, you're pretty much guaranteed to make a mistake on one out of every three points. Only a masochist would attempt to enjoy an activity in which he screws up a third of the time. Among the many things I hope you got out of this book is an appreciation of just how often you succeed in the face of so many obstacles. Just hitting a ground stroke or volley in the courts is an impressive feat. Don't take it for granted. I also want you to appreciate just how little you can actually control once you're out on the courts. One of the biggest myths in tennis is that a player can control how well he or she plays. In fact, you can only control three things. Your attitude, your effort level or intensity, and what you choose to focus on versus ignore. Everything else, sun, wind, noise, the speed and span of your opponent's ground strokes, the fairness or lack thereof of your opponent's line calls, how well your opponent plays, and everything else is 100% beyond your control. What about technique, you might ask? I might not be able to control the weather, but I surely can control my footwork, whether I keep my head still at contact, and where I toss the ball on my serve, right? Believe it or not, these things are also beyond your complete control. You can practice them, and you should, but on any given day, your ability fluctuates. Some days your timing will be spectacular. Others, it'll be off. We've all had days when, for no apparent reason, the racket feels foreign in our our hands and we can't hit the ball in to save our life. Nor can you fully control the inordinate number of tiny elements that make up a particular stroke or movement. The racket take back and drop, the contact point, the position of your torso and head, and so on, especially under pressure. How well you execute your swing and your strategy changes from match to match, from set to set, and even from one point to the next. There are simply too many variables in play. Does it ever happen that all the various aspects of your game come together and you play your absolute best? Sure, about three or four times a year. Any other time, you step out there with less than a full box of tools. The only reason I know any of this is because I experienced it myself. Senior year of college, I quit the team and walked away from playing the game competitively. For 10 years, tennis tennis had been the thing that brought me the most happiness in life, but suddenly I was miserable. The result of a gap between my expectation that I should play at a certain level and the reality of how little I could actually control. I found myself trudging off to practice reluctantly, wondering why I was even doing it. One day, I decided that if I didn't, I'm sorry, I decided that if it didn't make me happy, I shouldn't. All told, I was away from the competitive side of tennis for 4 years. It was during this time that I began my full-time coaching career. The combination of the two, not competing and helping others, allowed me to heal my relationship with the game. And with myself. For the first time in my life, I was able to define myself beyond how well I performed on court. Ironically, it was only by walking away from the game competitively that I found out what tennis meant to me and whether the game belonged in my life. The moral of the story is not that you should quit playing tennis. It's that if you do find yourself at a crossroads, allow yourself some space unplug for a few weeks, decompress, let your body and mind reset, then see how you feel. Figure out what tennis means to you, like I did, and how your relationship with the game can be healthy. And never forget the one and only reason any of us play, because it makes us happy. That's not to say that every moment on the court is going to be bliss. To truly enjoy the game, you need to enjoy the full spectrum of what tennis has to offer. This means embracing the highs and the lows, as well as all the wonderful benefits our sport has to offer, like discipline, perseverance, mental focus, self-exploration, physical health, and social interaction. These are some of the reasons we pursue hobbies of any kind. That tennis gives us all of them is a testament to how personally enriching the game is. If you do take a break, I hope you return. One of the best ways to understand the full experience of tennis is to watch the trophy ceremony at the end of a Grand Slam. You'll likely see two people crying. For the player who lost, it's because she came incredibly close to achieving a lifelong dream but fell short. For the winner, it's because she's realizing the fulfillment of that same lifelong dream and the culmination of countless hours of pain sacrifice, and failure that were required to get there. Even if you could avoid the pain, would you really want to? you leave so much on the table. The growth, the sense of personal development, and the pride of achievement that comes with overcoming obstacles. Genuine fulfillment is what makes the journey worthwhile. My wish for you is that you experience the full range of this incredible game. When you embrace the struggle of tennis with the right perspective, every little positive step step signifies personal growth. In my opinion, tennis is the most wonderful way to engage your mind, body, and spirit for a happy and fulfilling life. So that's the conclusion of Essential Tennis. There's 38 chapters and... My, the whole range of everything I've learned over 20 years of coaching is all wrapped up into this book. It's not a technique book. I talk about technique, but it's the core principles about the game that are critical to success. It's the essentials. So if you've enjoyed the the podcast in general, and any of that that I just read resonates with you, I really strongly recommend buying a copy. It's in audiobook, by the way. I read <laughs> I read the whole thing for the, the audiobook. It's on Kindle. It's in hardcover, paperback. And there are, uh, I don't remember, I think like 25 or so uh, videos that come along with the book uh, that you scan a QR code. You can go watch the lesson of me demonstrating whatever it is. And it's incredibly, incredibly valuable. So if you're ready to play your best tennis, then definitely pick up a copy. If you've already picked up a copy, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a review for it. That would really mean a lot to me. Hopefully you enjoyed this. If you did, shoot me an email if you made it to the end of this. Hopefully it resonated strongly with you. My email address is ian, that's I-A-N, at essentialtennis.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode. For more free game improving instruction, be sure to check out essentialtennis.com where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube where we are the number one resource in the world providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care and good luck with your tennis.